0: And I want to talk about vision this morning and so when you sang uh, Be Thou My Vision I thought this is is a great intro to what I want to say. This is a year of vision. It's a year of vision for the nation. Uh, It's been a year of vision for us at Laidlaw College. Uh, It's certainly a year of vision for the church and I understand that there is a move of God uh, which is exciting in the lives of young and old at the moment. And I'm seeing such an incredible time uh, of fruitfulness in in, uh, people's reading and, and response to scripture. Uh, We came across from Australia, originally we came here in uh, 2004. We worked for um, three years at the Master's Institute, writing a worldview diploma for them for distance education. Then we went back to Australia last year, and uh, we spent a year working with Christian schooling folks in Sydney and across the nation. Came back to New Zealand at the beginning of this year, uh, working with a residential internship uh, at the Maxim Institute, Spending nine months with eight young people who are on their way we trust to influence and leadership for the kingdom of God. And at Laidlaw College, as the head of their school of theology, uh, wanting to, to see a real renewal, I think, in the vision for theology. I, I can't tell me how, how many young people have come to me and sort of said, look, I'm worried if I study theology, will it, will it damage my faith? You know, if I study theology, will it undermine my confidence in the Bible? and I'm sort of saying, what Bible against theology? What's going on here? You know, theology is a love of scripture. I mean, one theologian says there's three steps in theology, God, scripture, and interpretation. Uh, In other words, knowing the Lord, loving his word, and interpreting it well in the history of Christian thought across the centuries. So I'm hoping that uh, the message will get out. Theology is a divine pursuit. It's a It's a second-order engagement with Scripture. It's a a delving into mystery. And and when I wrote these devotional books, we called them uh, Where Elephants Swim. Uh, Number one and number two are out. Number three is about to come out. Uh, They are devotions for parents and teachers in Scripture. And what we did was we took this saying from a guy called Pope Gregory, the fifth uh, historical figure, who said, In the Bible you will find uh, water in which a lamb may wade and an elephant may swim. And what he wanted to say was the scriptures will meet you where you are. Uh, If you need a a daily word from the Lord, if you're a young Christian, you'll find water where a lamb can wade. If you want a profound word from the Lord, uh, if you want to delve in the depths of uh, wisdom and truth and uh, beautiful uh, thought and engagement with God and his uh, triune being, you'll find water in which uh, an elephant might swim. So I thought, well, sometimes devotional books are a little where the lambs wade side of things. I'll try and write something which moves towards a little more of a profound engagement with Scripture. And I'm hoping that's what we can do uh, in the short time we have this morning in Mark's Gospel. I've called this presentation On the Road and in the House. Uh, Jesus is in the house, okay? Jesus is on the road in Mark's Gospel. And in the passage that you've uh, been coming up to in your Mark study... It's on the road and in the house, which gives us a nice framework, I think, for what Jesus is doing. And I wonder whether you've noticed that as Jesus is on the road and in the house in Mark's gospel, you're getting profound action and word about the kingdom of God and what that's about. Because Mark is, more than anything else, a book about what is your vision for life? What is your vision for a kingdom, a country, a way of being? And what is your vision of Jesus? Jesus on the road. Look at these markers in the gospel text before us, which is from 9.14 to 10.52 of Mark's gospel. On these occasions, Jesus is moving. He's going on in 9.30. In 10.1, he left there and went to Judea. In 10.17, he's setting out on a journey. In 10.32, they're on the road to Jerusalem. In 10.46, they come to Jericho. In other words, in this portion of Mark, the dominant shaping uh, framework for the passage is Jesus on the move. You know, Mark uses the little Greek word for immediately, I think it's 41 times in his 16 chapters. Because in Mark, Jesus is on the move. He's pacey, he's on the move. There's an immediacy, there's an action. This is the action gospel account. Jesus is in a hurry and he's on his way to Jerusalem. And that really does give you the shape of this particular portion of scripture but also and perhaps a little less clear to us is that jesus is in the house and mark unlike matthew and luke and john has these lovely moments where jesus sits down and goes into a house and speaks to the disciples and you've got three of them in this passage in 9:28, when he entered the house in 9:33, when he was in the house 10 10 in the house So you've got him on the road and in the house. And what I'm wanting to suggest is that as you read scripture, you need to pay attention, I need to pay attention to the time and the place and the location where Jesus is because this will govern what he's doing. Now I want to suggest that when he's on the road, he's available to the public. When he's in the house, he's moving into a more private space with his disciples. When he's on the road, he's Pacily on his way to Jerusalem, he's immediately on his way. When he's in the house, he's pausing and reflecting. You've got this on the road, pace, in the house, reflection thing happening. And this is not a bad metaphor for the way our Christian lives work, right? We're on the move with God a lot of the time, but we've got to sit down and reflect and be in the house as well with Jesus. On the move, reflection and sitting, perhaps that's a nice framework for thinking about the whole of life. Mark's gospel gives us that for Jesus. I only want to look at one section of Jesus on the road and one section of Jesus in the house today. And the one I chose for him on the road is Mark 10, 32 to 34. Now, if you don't have a Bible with you, then I've got the text on the screen here. But this is an outstanding portion of Mark's gospel. Three times in Mark's gospel, Jesus tells them about his dying about what we call his passion about his suffering about what's going to happen when they get to jerusalem because they don't have a clue actually they do think that when they get to jerusalem he's going to be somehow enthroned king but they don't realize the severe suffering and death that he's going to engage with and so on three occasions in this portion of mark he tells them now this is the third of those And it is the weightiest of all. I want to highlight a few things in this text. Look at Jesus is walking ahead of them. This is a fascinating detail. You've got to love these details in Scripture. He's walking on ahead. And the question is, well, what's he doing? The answer is he's motoring to Jerusalem. He's on the move. And they're behind and they're really not too sure about this because look at those two words. They're both amazed and afraid they're amazed and afraid why are we rushing what's he doing what's going to happen and then he says these words to them there's seven verbs or seven things that he says are about to occur he says i'm going to be delivered over to chief priests and scribes i'm going to be condemned to death i'm going to be delivered to gentiles i'm going to be mocked and spit on and flogged and killed seven things he says will occur here and this is the fullest statement of the suffering of jesus in any text in scripture this is picking up Isaiah 53 it's picking up a host of material from old testament in ezekiel and Isaiah. it's picking up a severe sevenfold suffering and look at the words if we go through them delivered condemned Delivered, mocked, spit on, flogged, killed, do they get the message? This is a severe prediction of Jesus' suffering. And as he says these words, you can hear the disciples going, well, mocked, won't you rise up and humiliate your enemies? Spit on, won't you resist them and call on your angel armies? won't you work a mighty miracle and break free killed this is not the Messiah we expected and then almost as an epilogue as an afterthought Jesus says and after three days he will rise this is the shape of Mark's gospel this is exactly in keeping with the way Mark presents messiah why because the kingdom vision needs to be corrected they've expected a messiah who would go to jerusalem and just overthrow romans and jewish authorities and restore the throne of david and set up the kingdom right now they don't understand that it's actually about a greater power a greater kingdom than that jesus is going to ransom the world from sin. Now you know this word ransom that comes in 10.45 of Mark is only used here in the New Testament. Paul uses another word which is uh, associated with this when he speaks about redemption. But only here in Mark 10.45 it says the Son of Man came to serve and to offer his life as a ransom for many Jesus needs to get it into the minds of these young disciples that the journey to Jerusalem is about suffering and dying, about sacrifice and servanthood and about a ransom for sin. Now, even today, that message, that kingdom vision, I believe, still has to be sown in our hearts if we are to understand something about our discipleship. But they don't really get it they're amazed and they're afraid. And you know, at the end of Mark's gospel, the resurrection occurs, the women run from the tomb, and in 16:8, which is the oldest manuscript ending of Mark, guess what they're feeling and what they're doing? It says they're speechless, they're amazed, and they're afraid. If you want to deep deeply enter the waters of Mark's gospel, you will be amazed with them, I think, and afraid. Of this kingdom vision of self-sacrifice. The story Reuben just told us about a man killed protecting somebody else from violence and abuse. That's what Christians do. Christian nurses serve people at the risk of their lives. Christian workers and doctors and builders and linguists go into places where no one else goes because we understand it's about self-sacrifice. The kingdom of God is an upside-down kingdom. Our ambitions, Christ's ambitions, are realized through a suffering, loving offering of ourselves because we have nothing to fear in the light of the resurrection of Jesus. On the road then you've got this as the first contour of the passage in Mark today. But let me give you the second contour and it's quite beautiful and I want to go back a little bit to this one in the house where Jesus in Mark chapter 9 has come to Capernaum and they enter into a house and you have a sort of a conversation except the disciples don't actually say anything in this conversation. Jesus does all the talking uh, and they sit there and receive from their rabbi as they probably ought to but it's embarrassing for them because they really are under his gaze For what they've been doing on the road behind him as he's walked perhaps look at the three things that Jesus says first of all he asks the question what were you discussing on the way what were you discussing on the way now when somebody asks you a hard question like this you've got two options you can lie or give a half-truth or you can stay quiet and they stay quiet because on the way they are actually talking about which of them was the greatest Right. I mean, can you imagine this? They're walking at pace to Jerusalem for his dying, and uh, Peter and James and John and the guys are saying, "Look, uh, I've worked more miracles than you, mate." And the other one, "Well, yeah, but I used to catch more fish than you, right?" And the other one goes, "Well, I pray longer than you." That one goes, "Well, I speak in tongues more than you do." The other one goes, "Well, hang on, I get more time with Jesus. So hang on, I, you know, I'm greater than you are, right?" that's what they've been talking about behind jesus as he's patiently on the way to jerusalem that makes no sense in the world does it they don't get it so jesus sits them down in a house in capernaum it's probably peter and andrew's house where jesus had healed the mother-in-law of peter earlier in this gospel account they sit down in the house it's probably peter's extended family who's around them and jesus says oh by the way guys what were you talking about on the road <laughs> And they look at each other and they go okay which one's going to tell him because actually he already knows so they just sit there silently and look at what jesus then says if anyone would be first he must be last of all and servant of all and then jesus does a remarkable thing and it's only like this in mark he finds a child uh, it's one of Peter's family. We would expect. He takes this child and he brings them into the midst. Now you can imagine Jesus is sitting there; that the disciples are around him. Judas is there at the moment as well. They're all there. And Jesus takes this little child and puts this child in the midst. Now let's imagine this child might be three or four years of age. Certainly a child that Jesus can pick up and take in his arms and the verb here in the Greek it would appear as he gives him a bit of a hug a bit of a squeeze and he sits him on his lap for a minute and then he says this whoever receives one such child in my name receives me and whoever receives me receives not me but the one who sent me now in Mark's theology this is actually a unique statement for Mark. You might have expected this in John or Luke but you wouldn't have expected it in Mark. You don't uh, feel that sort of surprise unless you read the whole book and get familiar with the book, that's what we've got to be doing here, understanding the books of Scripture. But this really stands out in Mark's Gospel because it's just not what you would have expected. And in this scene it's Jesus all the way acting and doing as Jesus does and the disciples just sit there look at the initiative of jesus they're in the house he asks a question they keep silent he sits them down and calls them together he gets a child he takes the child he says these words jesus over and over instructing this is why he needs to be in houses with his disciples because he's got to correct their misunderstanding This is why reflection in the Christian life is so important. We actually need time to be corrected. We actually need time to sit down and make sense of the pace. Next to the pace, we need the space to make sense of the pace. And I actually find those words, pace and space and grace, very important for Christian living. When you're really moving, you've got to have space to understand what God's grace will do. But let me try to explain what I think is happening in this beautiful scene when Jesus takes this child. Because he uses children at different times to teach his disciples different things. But what is it on this occasion that he's doing? What I think he's doing is he's taking a child who in the ancient world was the least important in the community. The child who is of the least value in the ancient world. The child who has no rights the child who was unnoticed, the child that in the Roman Empire was put to death, if not of a considerable physical value and stature, the disabled child was left on the hill to be emaciated and taken by a wild animal. The Christians were the ones who started rescuing those children and adopting them into their families because children were of no value in the Roman world. In the Roman Greek world, children were of no value. So Jesus takes the unnoticed one, he takes the undervalued one, he takes the little one, and he puts the child in the midst of the disciples. And he says, see this child, if you receive this little unnoticed one, guess what? You receive me. And then he says, remarkably, if you receive me you receive god the hinge between the unnoticed and the almighty is jesus the one who brings the gap together between the greatest and the weakest is jesus and you see what he's doing he's saying that's what my kingdom is like If you want to be great in my kingdom, you're going to have to learn to be last, to be unnoticed, to take care of stuff without reward. You're going to have to be the sort of person who is ambitious for self-sacrifice, who is ambitious for self-giving, who is ambitious for love. No more arguing about who's the greatest, guys. Let's pursue the unnoticed, let's pursue the unrecognized. Let's give value in the kingdom of God to what is devalued and undervalued in the other empires against which we contend. That's an amazing statement. I imagine after the time in the house when they got back on the road again, the disciples probably were quiet for a while. They realized now that it's not about Being noticed and being the greatest that it is about Jesus the King on his way to the cross now I'm not going to use any more slides as I draw us to some 21st century thinking now and some application because finally after we've worked in Scripture we need to say okay so what what does it mean for us and my answer to that today would be that in the 21st century in which we're living as it was in the first century. There's a number of kingdoms to choose from. In Jesus' day, you had the kingdom that the Pharisees were offering, or the Sadducees, or the Essenes, or the Zealots, or the Romans themselves, the kingdom of Caesar and Empire. And then you had the kingdom of Messiah Jesus, the kingdom that rose out of the Old Testament, out of the promises of prophets and covenant. And Jesus' kingdom turned all those others upside down because he gave value to what was in of no value in those other kingdoms, and he behaved in a way that no other king behaved. So, what about today? What about in our current arena? What is of value in the 21st century? What sort of character is prized in the 21st century? What sort of kingdom do we want to belong to in the 21st century? And can I suggest a couple of things that the kingdom of God would demand of you and I? if we long to serve jesus and i believe that the alternative kingdom vision that we are hearing in the west at the moment uh, largely goes under the rubric of consumerism it's that kingdom of self rights it's that kingdom of you are known by what you consume you are known by what you own it's that kingdom of style over substance it's that kingdom of individualism where i am at the center of my world It's that kingdom of quick fixes. It's that kingdom of multiple experience had on my own terms. That sort of consumerist experience that now is all that matters, that yesterday and tomorrow don't matter a great deal. That sort of kingdom shape is what we're hearing from advertisers and educators and politicians all the time. Elections that are won and lost on the promise of more dollars in our pocket. What sort of kingdom does Jesus offer when you see what he does in Mark? And then you say, okay, so what's it look like for me in the 21st century? Well, let me suggest that our authority as human beings is not grounded in what we own or consume, but in what we give and what we produce. And generosity is the catch cry of the kingdom of God, and hospitality, not rights and gathering things to ourselves in an era that is very concerned with power the kingdom of God would say to you and I your being and your authority and your power will be exercised through acts of love not through acts of self-promotion or individual grabbing strength shaped by love the kingdom of God Notice that in this passage in Mark's gospel, Jesus has used the name Son of Man for himself. Why does he do that? Because he wants us to understand as 21st century readers that he is the representative human being. This is what a human ought to be like. This is what all humans ought to be like. This is what kings ought to be like and rulers and politicians and businessmen and bankers and builders and parents. We ought to all be like this one who is the son of man or the archetypal human or the head of the human race or the new one the son of man what's he like well he sits in a house with a little kid on his lap and says if you welcome this little child you welcome me this is what our king is like any kingdom is ultimately judged by the value and care it places on its weakest members any kingdom is ultimately judged by its care for its weakest members who are the weakest members of the 21st century societies in the Western world of which we're a part well it's the elderly it's the disabled and it's the child the church as a model community is saying to the world we've got a new set of values for you we've got a new set of virtues for you we've got a new take on humanness for you our king sits with a small child and safely welcomes the weakest into the kingdom and says be like that if you receive this child you will receive me. The kingdom of God then is a radical alternative to the current kingdoms on show in the 21st century. Now I want to finish with one word about this language of amazement and fear throughout Mark. In Mark's gospel The language of amazement and fear is all through the text and in fact you need to read it that way because it's very different of course to what luke is doing and what john is doing and what matthew is doing mark's gospel is shaped by fear and wonder and amazement where is that coming from that is coming from the realization that mark wants to explore very very deeply the incredible wonder of the sacrifice of jesus on the cross he wants to help his readers to ponder how it could be that the Son of God, the Son of Man, the Messiah of Israel, Jesus Christ, could die for the sins of many. We've just shared in communion. I hope that we will never take for granted, never lose our wonder that our King died for the sins of the world, that our kingdom is a kingdom built on self sacrifice that the final visions of Jesus in scripture are the lamb standing as though slain always remembered by the holes in his hands and feet and the spear to his side and the, the wounds that he bore and the death in which he engaged for the sins of the world however the disciples in Mark are walking to Jerusalem they're walking with Jesus behind Jesus sometimes to the cross okay As 21st century readers it is important that we understand we are walking from the cross they are walking to the cross they're walking to Jerusalem they're walking to an event that they cannot understand but as spirit-filled Christians in the 21st century with a full canon of Scripture now with a full biblical text with Holy Spirit at Pentecost poured out with a sealed and finished gospel we are walking from Jerusalem we will always be walking from the cross we will always ground ourselves in the cross but our fear as disciples now is caught up I believe in wonder it's caught up in amazement it's caught up in hope it's caught up in a willingness to persevere it's caught up in a struggle and a kingdom engagement which is unique we don't have the same contours of fear but I think we do have contours of wonder which are still remarkable for all of us who read Mark. Because what Mark is finally asking you and I to do is find our place in this story and make it our story for the 21st century. In the spirit, in the light of death and resurrection, Paul continues to say, I die daily. Paul continues to say, I put on the death of Jesus so that you might live. In other words, he sees his life as Christ-like in sacrifice, not because he's frightened any longer, but because of the resurrection of Christ, he's confident and hope-filled. So in our office places and our families our employment and whatever it is we're doing for the Lord, we are agents of a radically different kingdom with different values, with different virtues, and with a king who is wholly admirable and on the side of the weakest.